Section 28 of the English Restoration and Louis the Fourteenth by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 21. Louis, William, Charles, Parliament, 1674 to 1677, Part Two. The effect of this blow was, for the moment, disastrous to France. Montecoccoli at once took the offensive. The French retreated in disorder to the Rhine, but turned to bay at Altenheim and fought so desperately that the imperialists left five thousand men dead on the field. They then crossed the river hurriedly at Schellstadt, while Montecoccoli passed at Strasbourg and laid siege to Agano and Saverne, the fall of which would have entailed that of Philipsburg but Condé flew to the rescue, and these fortresses were preserved. So skilful were his operations that before the end of the year the Allies had abandoned Alsace and recrossed the Rhine. It was his last exploit. Weary of action, he retired at the end of the campaign to a country life in his own domains. Meanwhile disaster had happened on the Moselle. Crequy had been utterly beaten before Treves, by the old duke of lorraine on september third and treves itself had been captured after a desperate defence the swedes too who had at length entered brandenburg had been thoroughly beaten june eighteenth by the grand elector and forced to retreat to mecklenburg their evil fortune had followed them at sea the dutch and danish fleets had inflicted upon them a crushing defeat in the baltic which led to the loss of the possessions which they had acquired in North Germany by the Peace of Westphalia. It was now Louis whose thoughts were turned toward peace. The state of his kingdom impelled him in the same direction. The drain of war and diplomacy had exhausted the treasure which Colbert had collected, while general discontent was once more spreading among the overburdened peasantry. Armed revolt had even broken out in Brittany, and in Bordeaux, the old centre of turbulence. Rovigny redoubled his efforts in England to secure a French party. But a French party as such he found it impossible to secure. On the contrary, it was clear that the next session would be of a vehemently anti-French character, especially as Danby himself had no love for France. It could be only by assisting one or the other side in the domestic struggle that Louis could hope to neutralize this spirit. He therefore applied to Shaftesbury and his friends. Their terms were simple. If Louis would help them to overthrow Danby and secure liberty of conscience for Protestants, they would withdraw their opposition to his schemes. This explains those closetings of Shaftesbury with James, which so puzzled people at the time, and which established against Danby a coalition of the nonconformists, the Catholics, and Louis. James received £20,000 for distribution at the end of the session, on condition that the English troops were not recalled, nor any vote passed hostile to France. But Louis was bent on a still surer way of securing the inaction of England. More than ever, he pressed upon Charles, through the potent influence of Louise de Querouaille, the necessity of being free of the control of Parliament. By August 19th, he had drawn from him, by promise of one hundred thousand pounds a year, 
an engagement to dissolve his parliament if it were still violent against france or refused to provide him with money thus on both sides he was safe he soon had cause to congratulate himself on his precautions when parliament met october thirteenth sixteen seventy five the request for supplies to pay the debts of the crown and to build ships was listened to with an ominous silence the reply when it came was a bill to incapacitate any one from sitting in either house without taking an oath against popery and an absolute refusal to pay the debts in view indeed of the growing strength of the french at sea a large addition of ships was voted but the intense distrust of the king was shown by the fact that besides the usual appropriation clause being passed a proposal to lodge the money not as usual in the exchequer but in the hands of the council of the city of london was lost by only seven votes meanwhile the opposition under shaftesbury's leadership hopeless of overthrowing danby so long as the present parliament continued consisting as it did largely of men dependent on his bounty was pressing in both houses for the dissolution which louis was urging directly on charles but the present members especially those elected during the reaction at the beginning of the reign had all to lose and nothing to gain by the proposal and no division was taken in the lords where james and the catholic peers supported it it was lost by two votes only foiled in this attempt shaftesbury determined to gain his ends by rendering business impossible it was easy to do this by raising the former dispute on the subject of appeals to the lords it at once became manifest that nothing else would be looked at until the lords yielded and shaftesbury took care that they should not yield charles was forced to close the session but he bitterly disappointed shaftesbury and his friends the practical certainty that a new parliament would consist of men still more vehemently opposed to the prerogative again won the day instead of dissolving he prorogued parliament for fifteen months to february sixteen seventy seven he then with cool audacity demanded his subsidy from louis this had been promised for a dissolution only but to louis as has been seen english neutrality was now more than ever essential that neutrality was safe if he could keep charles dependent on him for these fifteen months how accurately danby had gauged the situation is shown by the fact that rouvigny was informed that the money had been already entered in the english estimates for the coming year louis gave way without hesitation he was rewarded when in spite of all that danby could do charles further consented to an agreement that neither monarch should listen to any proposition from abroad contrary to the other's welfare or make a treaty with the dutch or any other state except by mutual consent the meaning of this latter clause was that charles was afraid lest the dutch by an alliance with louis might become supreme at sea and that louis dreaded an alliance of england and the republic against himself danby though he took part in the negotiation utterly refused to sign it declaring that his head would not be safe the king was obliged to write out and sign the treaty with his own hands the dishonesty of this transaction was flagrant ever since his separate peace with the dutch in sixteen seventy four 
Charles had been posing as an impartial mediator in the great European quarrel, and his representatives, of whom Temple was one, were already at Nijmegen, the town selected for the negotiation. Various causes delayed the arrival of their French colleagues until June 1676. Even then, the conference was not complete. The Allies were waiting to see what would be the result of the year's campaign. 5. Campaign of 1676 The fighting of 1676 was more remarkable by sea than by land. The care bestowed on the French navy by Colbert and Lyon and the inducements to the noblesse to enter the sea service had borne noble fruit. In Duquesne, France had an intrepid and skilful leader. In 1675 he had beaten the Spaniards at Messina, and had since been riding triumphant in the Mediterranean. At length a greater adversary, Router, with a powerful Dutch fleet appeared. Duquesne undauntedly faced the renowned sea-king. On January 8th and April 22nd, 1676, he fought two fierce but indecisive contests. The latter, however, brought upon the Dutch irremediable disaster. Router, the saviour of the Republic, even more to it than Turenne had been to France, was slain, and he left no one to take his place. With him passed away the last of the great antagonists, with whose names we have become familiar, Turenne and Condé, Tromp and Router, Monk and Rupert, Lyon and De Witt. All have gone, and those who have taken their places are smaller men. In June, Duquesne again attacked the Dutch and Spanish fleets in the Bay of Palermo, and this time won a complete victory. The French remained masters of Sicily. On land, May 1676, Louis, with the aid of Vauban, captured the towns of Condé and Bouchain. He then returned to Saint-Germain, leaving Schomberg in Flanders and Luxembourg in Alsace. The latter, however, was unable to prevent the imperialists from laying siege to Philipsburg. Almost everyone now desired peace. The Republic was exhausted, the death of Router had caused deep discouragement, and there was bad blood between the Dutch and the Spaniards, that cursed race as William did not hesitate to call them. The failure of William in July to capture Maastricht on the one side, and the failure of Louis to preserve Philipsburg, September 8th on the other, joined to the rising tide of passion in England, all tended to strengthen the peace influences. Louis now offered to William for a separate peace terms which appealed at once to his personal and national pride. He was to have the sovereignty of Maastricht and Limburg. The southern boundary of the United Provinces was to be moved so that starting at Ostend and passing by Ghent to Maastricht, it should include Antwerp. Safeguards were to be given against future attack, and William was to be supported by France in extending his authority over the Republic. For a while, but only for a while, William wavered in his loyalty to his allies. He then uncompromisingly declined the proposals. The coalition against Louis was anticipating decisive successes in the next campaign, though the Congress at Nijmegen was sitting. A great council had been called at Wesel to arrange the plan of campaign, for which vast preparations were being made, but that upon which they most rested their hopes was the English Parliament. 
6. The War and Parliament, 1677. Necessity had again brought Charles, February 25th, 1677, to face the Commons. So low had his credit sunk that he had been unable to raise a loan in London, while Danby promised him that if he would break with France, supplies far exceeding what Louis could offer would be forthcoming. Louis could only take all the precautions in his power. By an ordinance forbidding the seizure of English vessels, which the Dutch, to evade the liabilities of war, were employing to carry their goods, he conciliated, on the eve of the session, the goodwill of the London merchants, whose influence was vast and whose opposition had been passionate. He sent to Courtin, the new French ambassador at London, eighty thousand pounds for bribery, and he renewed his alliance with the Whig lords, James, and the nonconformists, to oppose Danby and secure a dissolution. Gourdin was ordered to give Charles no rest. Every day he was at Whitehall, and he never left the court until eleven at night. Well might Charles declare that he was like a besieged place. A blunder of the Whigs gave Danby at the outset a great advantage. Resting their case upon a statute of Edward III, which prescribed annual parliaments, they maintained that by the prorogation for fifteen months the present house had ceased to exist. It was easily shown that the statute did not apply and that it had been virtually repealed by the Triennial Act. In the Commons, the motion raised vehement opposition for the old reasons. The enemies of Danby appeared now as the enemies of Parliament, too. The result was an immediate triumph for the minister. The Lords declared that Buckingham, Shaftesbury, Salisbury, and Wharton, the chief movers, must ask pardon of the House. On their refusal, they were sent to the Tower and were thus excluded for the time from influencing the course of affairs. Danby at once took advantage of this momentary eddy in the political current. With the help of all the moderate men, he carried an unconditional vote for six hundred thousand pounds. He next, to quiet the anti-Catholic feeling, brought in a bill for better securing the Protestant religion in case of a Catholic succession. Drastic as its provisions were, the mere fact that it appeared to sanction a Catholic succession was enough to cause it to be regarded as a bill for the protection of popery, and as such, to awake so much jealousy that it never passed its second reading in the Commons. Besides, feeling was at the moment turned into its old channel by the alarming progress of Louis, who during March and April had stormed Valenciennes, the strongest fortress on the Scheldt, and captured Cambrai and Saint-Omer while his brother, the Duke of Orléans, had inflicted upon William, who had marched to relieve Saint-Omer, a disastrous defeat at Kessel on April 11th. Louis's ally, Charles XI of Sweden, had in the previous December gained a great victory over Christian V of Denmark at Lunden. Parliament was deeply moved by these tidings. A unanimous address was at once sent by both houses to the king, praying for the recall of the English troops serving with France. A second address on March 26th, repeated on April 5th, urged him to declare war against France, with offers of unlimited support. As Courtin informed Louis, the English would give everything for a war with France, even to their shirts. Charles was far from sharing their sentiments. To him, every defeat of William was grateful, not only as bringing peace nearer, 
but as weakening the prince's dangerous influence but indomitable under defeat william was as far from yielding as ever his personal ascendancy had compelled the support of the states-general he had reorganized his army after the rout of kessel in july he marched with fifty thousand men upon charleroi hoping to be joined by the duke of lorraine and intending after its capture to advance right into france on august sixth he was before the town but he had not yet served his apprenticeship in misfortune the french were vigilant and active as ever louvois the greatest quartermaster ever known flew to lille luxembourg got to william's rear and so threatened him that he had to raise the siege and repass the sambre with nothing but the recapture of link to show for his labour and loss the duke of lorraine had fared yet worse at the hands of crequy leaving a strong force to oppose the duke of saxa eisenach who had crossed by philipsburg into alsace this great pupil of turenne so harassed lorraine by skilful manoeuvring and vehement attack that from mouzon he drove him back upon the rhine still following he placed himself between his enemy and alsace leaving him a while he turned upon saxa eisenach forced him to take refuge on an island on the rhine and there to capitulate without delay he returned upon lorraine who had placed his troops in winter quarters passed the rhine on november eighth and before the duke could move invested and captured the coveted post of freiburg dumieres between the sea and the scheldt had taken st guilain and louis after a campaign to which the allies had looked as decisive saw his arms everywhere triumphant william's position became continually more difficult he was now the mark for universal abuse never it was said had there been a commander who had lost so many battles and failed in so many sieges the foreign officers in the dutch service contemptuously threw up their commissions the peace party in the republic was daily becoming more confident and he thought it best not to appear at the hague his position was now saved by louis himself the dutch were indeed anxious for peace but no peace would be grateful which did not secure their great interest commerce louis was asked if he would grant the repeal of all the hostile tariffs since sixteen sixty two and a satisfactory barrier to the spanish low countries he refused negotiations at once ceased the states-general voted a large increase of the army they withdrew a demand that they had made upon william for an account of the supplies previously given still more important was it that when he announced an intention of visiting charles at london they gave him full powers to treat in the name of the republic when parliament reassembled after a short adjournment on may thirty first sixteen seventy seven the commons at once declared in answer to the king's demand for money to secure his alliances that they would give no money for alliances which were not first placed before them this was a new departure of a most serious kind foreign alliances beyond everything else had hitherto been regarded as the prerogative of the crown and parliament while exercising much influence upon them had made no direct assertion of right for charles to give way would have been to confess his utter defeat in the running fight for the prerogative which is so important a factor of the history of the reign he refused to entertain the claim for a moment and ordered the houses to adjourn themselves giving them to understand that they would not sit until winter 
but this adjournment left him penniless and perplexed money must be got somehow there were two ways of obtaining it from parliament by securing a peace on the continent satisfactory to the allies or by declaring war against france his efforts in the former direction soon proved abortive for since the triumphs of the last campaign louis was less than ever disposed to be moderate but charles refused to yield to danby's pressure to declare war against france he could use the english feeling to more profit than by embarking in a struggle which would simply place him more and more in dependence on parliament he had simply to take another step on the familiar road for so long as the war lasted and the temper of parliament remained the same he had an article saleable to france danby when overruled on the main question proved himself a firm and audacious bargain driver he demanded from louis july sixteen seventy seven one million six hundred thousand pounds for this he promised that parliament should not meet until may sixteen seventy eight and that to discourage the allies they should be informed of his intention charles was thus able to carry on the ordinary expenses of government and louis gained the prospect of nine months freedom from english interference in the negotiations at nijmegen End of section twenty eight